Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to talk about the book of Revelation. And um, this has been a fascinating series. And uh, the second part of the discussion, our discussion this time is on the seven seals, chapter seven to chapter eight, verse five. Now, Alistair, last time, uh, we looked at the uh, the first six seals and the horses and everything else. How does chapter 7 through to 8 verse 5 connect with that preceding chapter 6? So we've had the first six of the seals open to this point. And now there's a brief respite um, as there's going to be the sealing of those who are going to be saved from the judgment to come. And then we'll have the opening of the seventh seal. This has the effect, among other things, of setting apart the seventh seal. We might think of the ways in which the sequence of seven um, in Scripture tends to be three plus three plus one. Here, it seems to be four plus two plus one. Uh, there is this setting apart of that final opening, which is distinguished from the previous six. But within the six, there is also this distinction between the first four associated with the horses and with the cherubim, the living creatures, and then the second two, which are not, um, or the, the two that follow that, which are not. And so this is completing the sequence in chapter 7 to verse 1 to 8 verse 5. And the seventh seal presumably connected in some way to the seventh day of creation. Yes, and that setting apart of the seventh um, would seem to heighten that connection. So within the seven-day pattern, we have three plus three, and then that crowning day, the day that's set apart from the others. And so this is a period of time that's set apart from the six that had preceded it. Now, what's the significance of the 144,000? Who or what are they? The number itself should um, spark our attention or grab our attention. So if you've learnt your 12 times tables, um, you know that 12 squared is 144. And then you have that times 10 cubed. And so within scripture, it's probably best to think about these numbers. There are squares and then there are cubes. It's probably best to think about them more in terms of shapes than in terms of to the power of three, for instance, or to the power of two. The cube can be connected, for instance, with the the most holy place. And later on in the book, we'll see this great cube that represents the holy city which suggests that the entire place is um, sharing that state or has that status of the most holy place, as we see it in the tabernacle or the holy of holies in the temple. And so those sorts of shapes are significant. Twelve is, of course, a number associated with Israel. And twelve times twelve is a sort of fullness of Israel. Elsewhere, we have numbers like seven squared. Think about the seven squared associated with counting the days towards Pentecost or counting the years towards the year of Jubilee. Um, elsewhere, we have squares with other sorts of associations. In ages, for instance, if you follow the ages of the, pen, of the patriarchs, they follow multiples of squares. So Abraham is seven times five squared. 
Um, Isaac is six or five times six squared. Jacob is three times seven squared. And then Joseph, five squared plus six squared plus seven squared. And so squares are quite common within scripture. Um, 10 squared is something that you'll see from time to time, more often 10 cubed. And that, again, gives a sense of a, a large fullness of this is the full complement. Um, no one's missed out here. And just as we might think about other great numbers that represent Israel, for instance, 120,000 is a number that fittingly represents Israel, or 12,000 we have at certain points. Think about the um, judgment upon the Midianites or in Numbers chapter 31, or at the end of Judges, the gathering together of the tribes in action against Benjamin and their allies, and the 12,000 there under the leadership of Phineas, again, it seems that that particular number represents the full gathering of Israel. And so here, the the number actually is associated with twelve the 12 tribes. And so each one of the tribes is represented, and each one of the tri- tribes has 12,000 saved of them. So who are these uh, Jewish people? Are these martyred Jewish Christians? In the in the early church period, I think it's um, a reference to Jewish Christians who are saved at this point in in the story. Um, so this is prior to the end of the temple order, and so it's as if there are overlapping covenant orders in this period of time, where there is still a very clear distinction between Jew and Gentile within the body of Christ, even though they are united in Christ. There is also this distinction that persists, and that is one that allows, I think, for this group of people who are Jewish Christians in particular to be saved um, as this distinct group. Now, how is the seal placed on the forehead a connection with the high priest of Israel, or is it? I think it is. Um, So there are marks on the forehead um, elsewhere. We can think about the mark on the forehead of sweat following the judgment, the curse, uh, there's a mark placed upon Cain. We might think about the way that there is a mark placed upon the high priest as he has holy to the Lord written on a a, a blossom or some sort of plate upon his forehead. And that represents his status as one who is set apart for the service of Israel and he represents Israel. He carries Israel upon his body in symbolic form. And so he represents the it's like a wedding ring upon someone's hand. It's the plate upon the forehead that represents to the Lord his promises to Israel and assures Israel in turn of their standing with the Lord. And so I would say it connects with the high priest. We might also think about the way that the the Israelites are called to have the law, as it were, as frontlets between their eyes. And there is a wearing of the law upon their forehead. Again, that might be connected with the way that the mark is supposed to be placed. The mark of blood is supposed to be placed upon the lintels and upon the doorposts. And so the human body, its lintels, as it were, forehead and doorposts would be the arms. Mm. or the legs. Yes. Now, next in verse 9, we we could talk 
a long time about the 144,000, but we have another group of people, another massive group of people. In verse 9, we get a great multitude from every nation. Now, is this a Gentile multitude of martyrs? Yes, I think so. Um, although here it's not, um, they're not primarily depicted as martyrs. It's the uh, 144,000 who are chiefly seen as the martyrs within this situation. Why do they wear white robes and carry palm branches? Again, um, the white robes, is they are a sign of their fittingness to the fact that they've been set apart and fittingly clothed for, for this. We can think back to some of the language used in the letters to the seven churches about white robes. Might think also of the night vision concerning Joshua, the high priest. He needs clean robes, and now clean robes have been given to the saints. Might also maybe think about the way that it's something of a vision of Elam here. So you have the the twelve wells and the seventy palm branches, or the seventy palms representing Israel and perhaps the nations. And now you have the 12, and then you have this great multitude with palm branches around them. What is John told about um, these folk in verse 14? In verse 14, again, we can think about the fact that they are prepared because their blood is not what we would use for a detergent. But spiritually, it's what enables them to have clean robes because their sins and their impurity has been dealt with by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. We have um, a description of uh, of them having been washed by virtue of Christ's blood. Um, later on, we have the image of the saints being victorious through Christ's blood in chapter 12. So this is the means by which the saints are purified, by which they are cleansed. At the very beginning of the book, it's important to remember, we've had letters to primarily Gentile churches. This is not... The opening letters are not to Jewish um, churches in Judea, but to churches in Asia. And this part of the letter could, however, be read as chiefly concerning the city of Jerusalem. But that image of churches who are suffering something of the same tribulation that chiefly comes upon the Jews is, I think, important background here. We've seen some of these churches addressed specifically, some of these Christians addressed specifically. And here we have a more general description of this company of people. What's the significance of the fact that the angels respond to the worship of the multitude there in verse 11? There is, we should remember, a more general pattern of, um, well, everything that's happening in heaven is a sort of worship service or a liturgy. And so the events that occur, even as they're described bringing judgment and disorder upon the earth, they are playing out in a sort of cosmic liturgy. And within that, there's great beauty and order. We might think about the ways that the death of the, um, of the martyrs is presented as like placing blood beneath the altar. This is part of a liturgy, part of a process of sacrifice we might be familiar with from the book of Leviticus. And here I think we're seeing something similar, that there is part of this cosmic liturgy is taking place here. And there is this almost the leading of this worship is taking place by, it is the 
the gathered company of the people of God who are leading this worship now. And increasingly, it becomes less of an angelic worship scene and more of a human worship scene because the lamb has been established. He is the the true man and around him are gathered his people. And then increasingly, the places formerly occupied by angels will be occupied by human beings. Why is there silence in heaven for about half an hour there after the seventh seal is opened? Yes, we have descriptions of judgment in the Old Testament in various places that describe a sort of silence in heaven in Habakkuk and Zechariah and other places. And this would seem to be a similar sort of thing. Um, So you might think about Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Or Zephaniah, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests, which is exactly what we see here. Or Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Or um, the arrival of of the Lord to judge, described in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flash from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague plague followed at his heels. Remember the images of the horses in the preceding chapters. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Again, the vision of the sixth seal. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And so there is this silence before the Lord is about to come in the fullness of his judgment. Is this our reference back to the gospel of John? Um, In John, we have very clearly this anticipation of the hour that the Lord is going to be crucified in the hour uh, my hour has not yet come my hour an hour is coming or the hour has now come that and this is language that we have throughout the gospel of John and within the gospel of John we also have this emphasis upon that hour being the seventh hour so in John chapter four, we have, it was the sixth hour and Jesus talks to the woman at the well, an hour is coming. And then at the end of the chapter, in the seventh hour, he heals the nobleman's son, or in the sixth hour, he's presented to the people um, and then cru- and brought forward to be crucified. And that is the hour that is coming. And so we've got the seventh hour there. And um, it seems that this is maybe something similar, that mm-hmm. there is this emphasis upon the hour that is going to be the climactic, fulfilling hour. And now um, that expected time has arrived. Yes. What's the significance of the seven trumpets and the seven angels? I think the most natural um, connection we might think about is back in the book of Joshua. So in Joshua, we have seven circuits of the city and seven Levites with seven trumpets who blow those trumpets and lead to the destruction of the city. The walls fall down. This is the same story here. Led by Joshua, Jesus, we have seven angels with seven trumpets who lead to the downfall of this great city, which is a new Jericho, a new sign of 
As this city is brought down, the conquest of the earth more generally is initiated. Now, which altar does the angel stand at? What's the significance of that? He's at the uh, altar, the golden altar of incense. And so within the um, tabernacle or the temple, the golden altar of incense is inside the holy place. And it's not the brazen altar or the bronze altar that's out in the courtyard. It's within. It corresponds with the bronze altar in various ways when certain sacrifices are made for priests rather than commoners. The corresponding place to place blood is upon the golden altar, whereas for the commoner, it would be upon the brazen altar in the courtyard. And so what's happening here is um, the presentation of incense connected with the prayers of saints. Remember, we've got the blood of the saints beneath the altar, and now you've got the prayers of the saints being offered from the altar of incense. All of this is framed by your mental model of the tabernacle or the temple. Now, what's the significance of the incense then? The incense rises up. We might think about within the temple or the tabernacle, there are various pillars of smoke. So first of all, the pillar of the smoke of God's presence, um, the glory presence, the pillar of cloud and fire. And then you have the pillar of smoke from the brazen altar, the burning um, animals that are ascending in the smoke to the Lord, the ascension offering. And then we have the altar of incense that goes up in clouds before the Lord and before the um, most holy place or the holy of holies. Again, think of the tabernacle as a sort of series of ascents. You begin with the courtyard and then you ascend into the holy place and then you ascend into the most holy place. You don't literally do that. Um, it's all on level, but symbolically you are ascending. Why does the angel fling coals to the earth there in chapter 8, verse 5? So it seems to be some sort of judgment. We might also think about the ways that the coals would be connected with the incense, the burning of the incense. And the um, Christ, for instance, talks about the way that he's going to set cast fire to the earth. This would seem to be referring to something similar. And within scripture, we have this, what happens at Pentecost is a sort of casting of fire to earth. The baptism of the church with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Our prayers go up to the Lord in a new way because fire has been cast to earth. We might think about the way that the church is lit like a um, lampstand with each of the saints having a flame of a tongue of flame upon their head. Now, here, I think we're having something similar. There is a casting of flame to earth, but it's also going to lift up the prayers of the saints. It's going to bring judgment and consume the wicked. In what sense is God's throne descending to earth here? The imagery here should recall for us the description of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, where the Lord's presence comes down upon the mountain. And there it's this terrible um, vision of um, on the third day, there's the thunder and the lightning, a thick cloud and earthquake and loud trumpet blast and all the people are trembling. And here I think you're having something very similar. The Lord's presence is coming and the people recognize that God is in the midst of, God is coming to earth 
and he's going to judge and act on behalf of his people and against their enemies. Final question, Alistair. We could talk for hours about this. What's the significance of the thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake? Yes, again, those would seem to um, draw our mind back to images of Sinai. We might think also of the way that some of this imagery is found in the connection of Christ's crucifixion. And we saw some of that earlier on at the end of the sixth seal. All of these things might also recall for us the way that the giving of the Spirit is described in Acts chapter 2, if I can find the description of Peter. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's imagery that we have on the sixth day and also, or the sixth seal and also here in the seventh. Mm. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. Absolutely fascinating as always, Alistair. Thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.